Welcome to Engaging Culture, a podcast presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. I'm Brian Kiley. Today, my co-host, Pastor Lance Hahn, and I are going to talk about the most underrated relationship skill. This is a skill that all of us need if we're going to succeed in relationships, whether they're friendships, romantic relationships, work relationships, whatever. And uh, the good news is we can grow in this skill, we can apply it in our lives, and we'll find our lives are a lot better for it. So what is that skill? Well, you're just going to have to keep listening because we're going to talk about it on this episode of Engaging Culture. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Engaging Culture Podcast. We are not live today. We're recording on August 13th for an August 20th release because we're going to be doing something else on August 20th. But I am joined by Pastor Lance Hahn, back from vacation. Yes. And I would like to correct something immediately on this podcast. Oh, oh boy. I am live today. You know, I, I appreciate the I fact that you're not it, live today. It, it it depends on your definition. There you we are go. Right. You, we are live. I in the am sense live that, right like, now. What you are saying is not currently <laughs> <Yes>. pre-recorded. <laughs> right. So I stand Contra- corrected. Yes. Contrary to what some might think, I'm actually alive. Yeah. Well, uh, glad to have you back on the podcast. You've missed a few episodes lately. We've been talking about all of your favorite subjects while you've been gone. Okay. Great. Like, uh, sports. Sports. Which I know is something that yeah, uh, you love talking about. Yeah, near and dear about. to my heart. And uh, the Enneagram. I know you're a fan oh, of the yeah. <laughs> Enneagram. Super close on that. S- s- side note, or I'll do like the, the voiceover narrator from uh, like Arrested Development. Yeah. He's not a fan of the Instagram. <laughs> right. Anyways, um, but glad to have you back. And today we are going to talk about what I believe, and I didn't even yeah. see if you believe if you agreed with me on this. But what I believe is the most underrated relationship skill there is, and it's something that uh, is can be incredibly helpful in all of our relationships if we've got it and we're conscious of it and we're growing in it. But it can cause all sorts of problems if, if we're not we thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. So um, I believe that the number one underutilized and underrated skill um, is an offshoot of this, and it's really this is the heart of it. Okay. So I do agree with that. Okay. I would say it. It. I would use one of its practical examples. Okay. Uh, so anyway, we're talking very cryptically, yes, as if we, we don't are. really want to mention it. But we are going to reverse roles a little bit yep. because I'm actually going to interview. You, in a sense, by ask you some pointed questions, mm-hmm. and then you would get us started, and then I can comment on yep. it. But I'm actually going to lead this. Yep. Just okay. letting you know that. All right. Well, that I, was I, a way. I, that, that was a way to create boundaries. <laughs> Excellent. Right there. The Stop talking, been... Brian. I'm in charge. I say that to him every day because we work together. Someday I'll start listening. <laughs> right. So. Right. Yeah. Now I'm going to get in here though. Yeah. I'm going to get in here though. So, no, go so, for so it. in talking about this, and I, I, we're talking about this in part because I, I prepared a talk on it recently and uh, had a lot of fun studying it, and it's something I want to grow in personally. But uh, there is a study done by an organization called the Center for Creative Leadership, and they studied six thousand. 731 leaders, an oddly specific number, yeah, from 38 countries, and found that this skill correlated strongly with job performance. Uh, people with this skill have healthier friendships, they have healthier romantic relationships. Those who lack this skill tend to have uh, dysfunction and destruction in their relationships. This is a skill that was absolutely exemplified in the life of Jesus, and we're going to get to that. And the skill that I'm talking about is empathy. Empathy. Can you spell that for us? That would be E M. Can I use it in a sentence? Nation of origin. E M P A T H Y. I know you didn't really want me to spell it. No, I, no, no, no. Actually, I, I really did. I wanted so, to make sure that I am correct so, in my spelling. I think we need to define this. Yep. And then I'll throw it back to you. Yes. So I was already, when I was doing some research for this talk I'd prepared, I was all ready to get up in front of these people I was going to be speaking to and present the definition of empathy as uh, the art of stepping into the shoes of another person and seeing the world from their perspective. I was all ready to go on that. But then I watched this TED Talk from some empathy expert, and I Uh-oh. thought he had he made a really good point. He said that we usually talk about empathy uh, in those terms. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoes and see the world from their perspective. But he said, that's actually impossible. And if I think I'm doing that, then I can actually wind up making judgments yes. about you or sure. whoever else. Uh, and, and, and those it's assuming. Exactly. I'm making assumptions and judgments, which very well may be inaccurate. So he said, it's not that we're li- like stepping into the shoes of somebody else, but he says it is the righteous struggle to try. Uh, to say, I don't necessarily see the world the way that you do, but I want to do my best to try. And I really like that because I think it it recognizes our limitations while still 
kind of inspiring growth in us. Yeah. Uh, so if you're going to look at the dictionary, it is the ability to understand and share the feelings of other people. Yeah. I get if, to simplify sure. it, right? I mean, obviously they're digging in deeper, sure, and they're saying you you can't really do that. But give us some examples on what empathy. What if you're acting in empathy? If you're being empathetic, give us some examples. Yeah. So so I think probably the the easiest sort of street level example I can think of is so the classic book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I could not even name all seven of the habits or even three or four of them, but there's one that I, I try to keep with me at all times, and that is, he says, seek first to understand and then be understood. So the idea of empathy is to say, before I am projecting my own point of view, I want to really try to understand not just the words someone else is saying, but I want to understand where they are coming from. And I think in our society today, where it's so easy to argue, it's so easy to react, I think to, to practice empathy is to say, okay, before I react, I want to make sure, am I really understanding what is being said to me, whether it's a debate about an issue or a discussion in your household, right? Uh, am I really making, making an effort to understand what someone is saying to me, or am I just trying to make sure my point of view is getting across and, and I'm being heard. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. When uh, it is very, very common for us in a conversation to wait for our turn to share our opinion. You're yeah. not even listening. You're waiting for the break. Right. Whatever the break is, then you're going to go, and now I'm going to interject my <laughs> opinion, so would you hurry up and get done <laughs> so I can do my part, when in fact you're not even listening at all. Yeah. Now, you mentioned kind of uh, in your quasi-intro, your second intro to your first intro, uh, so you were sharing intros. a little bit about the benefits of empathy. Can you kind of go through those a little bit with us? Because it is critical, and I think that people aren't appreciating the power of it. Yeah. So yeah. what are the well, benefits? Well, the, the, the benefits are substantial, and uh, and they, they relate to all different areas of life. And, and an example that I've uh, – let me answer that question by giving an example from sort of my personal life. Yeah. Is, uh, so to speak of two entirely different people who are not a part of our church community or, or anything else or, or local or whatever, but people I've known for a very long time, there is one person who I know who tells lots of funny stories – and is a legitimately funny person. Like when I see them, I don't see them often. When I see them, they make me laugh and, and you know, okay, cool. But I literally, and this is a person I've known for a very long time, I cannot remember ever having like a normal conversation with them where they like ask me actual questions and listen to me. Right. Or I'm able to ask them actual questions and even listen to them. And, and I think about like the value I place on that relationship. It's not like, I'm not like, oh man, I can't wait to see him again because all I get is talking. Right. Like it's not there's no real relationship forming going on. Whereas I think about another person who I've known for a very, very long time. And every single time I see him, I see him do this with me. I see him do this with other people. He is so good at asking questions. He yeah. is so good at really trying to a understand just what's going on in your life. But then even as we get into conversations and, and we're close friends, we get into conversations about different issues, things going on in the world, whatever. He does such a great job of really trying to make sure he understands what people in the room are saying. And he's one of those people that I always feel very seen by him, you know, yes. which I think is a, is a, is part of what happens when we're empathetic is we really help others be seen. And it's like, that's a relationship where I really, man, I'll, I'll take the opportunity to, to speak with that person any chance I get because we can have a real conversation. And I know that I'm not going to be judged. I'm going to be listened to. And then I've tried to practice that, of course, in return to him. So, so I think that helped. That's, and, and I think that even just the way that I would classify those two relationships help show the benefits of empathy is that like this one funny person who I don't really view as having any empathy at all. I'm sort of like, eh, I can see him or not. I don't really care. Whereas those that do, I'm like, man, I want to be around them. I want to work with them. Like, what excuse can I come up with for us to work together? And when you talk about professionally, we talk about friendships, talk about even romantic relationships. It's like you want to be that sort of a person because people are going to want you around. Yeah. So, so, so that to me is the biggest benefit. And I think it, it, it increases, again, our sense of generosity. It cre increases just our sense of joy in others. I think it brings down our sense of jealousy and envy mm. because jealousy and envy are more, the, more often than not provoked by not knowing someone's whole story. <laughs> totally. Right? So, so the benefits are just are absolutely 
substantial. So it's possible to talk with people and still not bond. I, I was, that's, you know, you were saying that you can just talk, 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 and you're not, there's no relational connection right. going on. Um, I've been recently listening to an awful lot of uh, podcasts from famous people interviewing other famous people. And one of the things that they've been digging down into both of the, the different podcasts is how much they greet people, but they only have surface conversations. And what they love about the podcast um, avenue or the the media, yeah. the medium of it, is that they can slow down and connect by being able to listen and have a give and take yeah. in there. And they were explaining that that the value of being able to ask questions and listen and all that creates a deeper bond. So when you were talking about some of the benefits, uh, you were talking about allowing meaningful conversation and listening deeply, but you also said a phrase, and I don't know if you got this from the job performance increase uh-huh. discussion from the the Center for Creative Leadership, yeah. but you said people tend to be more generous and happier if they're empathetic. Why is that? Yeah. My conjecture, yeah. and I don't, I don't sure. have hard data to back this up, but I think that when we allow ourselves to feel more deeply towards others, we would are more inclined to act in ways that consider their well-being. I, right. I think it's really that simple. That yeah. if I care about you as a person, I am more likely to say do something that might benefit you financially if you're in hardship, as opposed to maybe how I'd be inclined to act towards a random person towards whom I have no relationship. Or certainly, if I've sort of bought into the the myth that my happiness is found in only pursuing my own narrow self-interests, right. I'm going to be less likely to be generous. But when I realize, say, say for example, the importance of relationships to my happiness, that's going to I'm going to be inclined to leverage the resources I have, whether they be time, money, uh, skills, whatever, for the benefit of those who I'm in relationship with, which I think is a byproduct of empathy. Well, in just sharing in generosity, this morning we were uh, in a staff meeting and learning about uh, Uganda. We were talking about Mm -hmm. Uganda and and, and situations there. And uh, my daughter went this last year. And then two years ago, we went together. And she had seen uh, last year, uh, last time we went, she had seen a young girl walking down the road with a limp. Yeah. And her heart went out to her. That idea of your mm-hmm. heart going out to somebody is the very concept of empathy. Yeah. And they ended up, her and some other leaders, ended up carrying that young girl um, all the way to her school, yeah. miles away. Yeah. That generosity of time and attention was because he said, if I was a little seven-year-old girl crippled and everything was hard for me, and I, I would want to be carried yeah. because it hurts so bad to exist yeah. and to walk. Yeah, This girl was um, on the edge of death, and mm-hmm. yet she was trying to walk to school. Yeah, wow. And so that idea that you would go, well, that per- if you're only thinking of yourself, you would say, that's just another person on my street. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking and putting yourself in their shoes, yeah. then suddenly you go, I need to carry that person. It creates a different response. Yeah. And generosity begins to flow. And I think that ultimately, when you bring a true benefit, there brings a happiness yeah. that comes back into your heart. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's that. absolutely true. And, and that comes from, and I, and I think that's a wonderful example of sort of seeing a need having your heart go out and then not looking away, you know, and none of us right. are perfect at this. Right. Uh, no. But, but to, to be able to do that, um, I think that's powerful and, and good comes from that. Yeah, absolutely. So. Now there are limits to, to empathy. I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about this concept that there are some people we don't want to be empathetic. Um, <laughs> and you go, well, how is that possible? Um, cause if you're really getting in the other person's shoes and seeing the world from their perspective, a doctor in the middle of a surgery does not need to be empathetic, <laughs> right? Right. You need them to have healthy boundaries yes. to keep in their, own world and say this is really going to hurt you but i need to do what i need to do right um you don't i don't need him like wincing as he <laughs> makes the surgical cut like oh boy no <laughs> but in general other than some healthy because i think that sometimes uh people call things empathy which are actually codependent yeah and no, so good. i think that there needs to be some healthy boundaries but in general it would do us well that all of us 
increase in empathy. So this yeah. leads me to our, our next point that I wanted to ask you. Is it natural for everyone mm-hmm. to be empathetic? Does that just, it, when you're born as a baby, you're super empathetic? Is that how it works? The ability to do it exists in almost everyone. Now, I okay. didn't like totally dig into this research, but neuroscientists have found that about 98% of us have the ability to grow in empathy. And, and empathy, like any other skill, like some of us are just more naturally gifted at certain things than sure. others, right? Yep. Some like, are more people-oriented, some are, yeah. Yeah. Last night at soccer practice, I'm I'm working out some kids playing goalie, and they've never played goalie before, like literally never, because it's our first year with, with goalies. And it's like some kids just kind of get it better than others yes. without any training, and then those that get it, you want to train more. And I think that just like that with, with empathy, uh, some of us are going to be more naturally empathetic than others due to genetics and, and this and that. But again, 98% of us can grow. It's going to be easier for some than others, but uh, we can get better. And, and, and the sort of the key to growing in empathy that scientists have, have recognized is the presence of what are called uh, mirror neurons in our brains. That when and you we, said mirror? Mirror. Okay. Uh, when we see things happening and observe things happening in the world, it creates a response in our brain that is basically a fainter version of the response that happens in our brain when we're actually experiencing something. So, so to me, uh, the most relatable example is when you see a gruesome injury or something like that, how we don't just go, well, that's unfortunate, <laughs> right? But we right. wince or maybe yes. we shield our eyes or we look away or we're bothered by it. Or like if, if, like if you were to start describing something like some like gross injury that happened to you, I would very quickly like plug my ears and start going la, 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 la. Not because I don't want to hear about it, but because it makes me right. feel Physically. viscerally very yeah. uncomfortable. <laughs> right. right? And, and that that's an example of this part of our brain, these mirror neurons that help us practice empathy towards others because we feel what the people around us are feeling, which I think is a really powerful it's cool. Concept. I mean, it's it's a God connection thing that totally. he designed into the human body. Absolutely. Um, I, I recently went to go see the movie Hobbs and Shaw. Okay. Which is a Fast and Furious uh, abomination. Um, it, this this movie. So it'll is be winning so several useless. Oscars. Yeah, there's going to be no Oscars here with Jason Statham and The Rock. Um, oh. So it's not going. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, um, I am the type of guy that in action movies, I'm very loud in the movie theater. <laughs> So I'm the one, every time someone gets hit, I go, oh, really loud, right? Like I'm constantly yelling. Oh so uh, just be aware of that if you're going to go to a movie with All me. All right. If you hear someone yelling. It is it always me. Okay, so here's the thing. Although it is hardwired into us, the other piece is that it can be learned, right? I right. mean, because you said some people like like goalies, right? Which yeah. is shocking that you used a sports analogy. I know, weird, right? But there are some kids that were just natural at being a goalie and some that were not. But yet those children can all learn all how to be a better. goalie better. Yeah. So let's say you're not naturally a people person. You're a bit more of a um uh <laughs> not a people person. We'll just put it <laughs> that way. You just think people are terrible. Yes, exactly. There is still an ability to learn. Now, we're going to get into in a moment kind of how we can stimulate that idea in us, but there is hope for us, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. So we can be. Now, when we're talking about engaging culture as a podcast, we usually talk about engaging culture with Christian values and Christian ideals. We look out at what is there, and we put it through a biblical lens. So there's got to be an automatic question for anyone that is is a Christian that's going to say, Okay, is this a Jesus thing? Like, yeah. we keep referring to this idea that God hardwired it into us. Of course, we're big creation guys. Sure. Um, but but a lot of times, Jesus was just modeling health to yeah. us. Is there empathy in his life that we can we can see or read about? Yeah, that's an important question, because certainly you could talk about empathy from a secular perspective, but that's right. not what we're trying to do. And, and, I, and I look at, uh, and again, I, I think Jesus modeled this tremendously. And even uh, Hebrews chapter four says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, which sympathy is not the same as empathy, but who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Right. And that's always been a powerful verse to me, to to yes. Just this this idea that that God is not distant. That part of part of an incarnational faith is the recognition that 
Jesus has experienced life as we have experienced it. So, yeah. so, so there is an understanding there. He's in and, it exactly. Yeah. And then, and then there are numerous examples. I mean, I, I just think of a couple off the top of my head, and, and maybe you could add in some as well, where Jesus encountered people who were hurting. Yes. Whether it was the woman who had given all of her, her money to doctors and is is still sick, or a yes. uh, situation with Lazarus's family at the time. I mean, even right. look at like Jesus. Jesus knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Yes. And there is still weeping going on and mm-hmm. there are various complexities and theories right. as to why but yes. i think the the important thing is he is feeling that moment he is entering into it even though he knows he's about to bring something yes you know bring, bring something to bear that's going to solve it and and i think even about jesus and his ability to ask questions right you look at how often in the gospels jesus would be asked a question and responds with a question all the time right and it was never because he was lacking information right like if there was ever somebody who could get away with not doing that he's like all right listen i am doesn't matter what room i'm in i'm the (laughs) smartest person here and i've got everything right and yet he's still engaged in question asking which i think is is powerful so it is so much relation building right um you think about him touching the leper right he did not have to it was the idea that this man can be simply healed physically yeah but what is a deeper need? If yeah. I'm going to get into his shoes, the idea that he has not been touched the majority of his life yep. means that there is a there is a lack yep. there that Jesus said, while I'm healing him, I can heal him in such a fashion that I also minister to another layer of him, yeah. which is his emotional heart. Yeah. Um, now he didn't. If he would have just been in practical mode, you just simply speak out the word, speak out the thought spiritually. He can heal him. Yeah. We know, uh, this has been a powerful truth for me, but um, when Jesus said, your servant is healed at this very hour, meaning you don't, I don't even have to go to your house. I just yeah. have to think it and it's done. If Jesus can heal like that, anytime he does not heal like that, he's doing something additional. Yeah. When he touches the leper, that was not necessary. Yeah. It was an additional healing element, but he would not have done that if he did not empathize or get in there and say, I would want to be touched. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a, that's a great point. And, and you look at it just, I mean, how, what an incredible job Jesus did at making people feel seen. Yeah, right? uh, for sure. Like what the, the example you just gave is, is a perfect example of that. Or I think about the, the woman at the well, right? That yeah. so much of the ministry that happened there was was him seeing her. Or or the story, the, the reference escapes me at the moment, but a time where uh, a blind man is calling out to yes. Jesus. And Jesus could have just been like, ba-bing, okay, he can see, let's move on. Yep. But even that he took the time to ask the, the man, what do you want me to do for you? Yes. Like Jesus knew. Yeah. Right. But how powerful for that man to know, okay, this, this, I don't know who this Jesus is, but I know he sees me in this yes. moment. And, and, and to what you just said, which I think is such a great way of saying it, that he that he is ministering to people on a deeper level, yeah. including the physical to be sure. Yes. But beyond that, which I think is really neat. Well, so you um, you just crashed into something I wanted to highlight, which was to practice empathy demands something from you. Yeah. It stops your world and you're about someone else. So you were just mentioning Jesus yeah. could have moved on and said bada bing and suddenly the blind man is healed. Yeah. But he stopped and took the time. Um, one of the examples I was thinking about was there's a woman who her own her only son is dead yeah. And they have a funeral march, and Jesus stops where he's going, has them lower it down, and raises this boy to life. He could have just watched it pass by. Yeah. When you have empathy, it means that you are what the Bible talks about is saying, considering others' interests more important than your own. Yeah. And you go, wow, she is so hurting right now. I am not hurting right now. I can now take of my time, pour into her, raise her son from the dead, which completely derails my entire plan. We were all headed this way when these people came by. So the idea of empathy requires a sacrifice to get there. And I think that sometimes we don't always want to make that sacrifice. So I want to transition, for example, uh, for, for a moment that you have prepared for us. And I think in your talk as well, which I think uh, was brilliant. I'm glad that you did that talk. Um, and knowing that you were sick while you gave that talk only made it only made it better. But um, in that talk, you gave three examples 
of challenges to empathy because you would assume and say, why doesn't everybody just do it? Yeah. Like if we're if we're hardwired for it, if 98% of us have the natural ability, if little babies sometimes, uh, you know, uh, they can care for somebody or cry if another baby is crying, whatever. Right. Why not just everybody do it all the time? Yeah. Because I'm not doing it all the time. Right. Why not? You're not. Why not? I am. Just kidding. Well, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> Other yeah. than you're more holy than I you're am. You're right. Uh, I, just, I just wanted to get that on the record. Yeah. Uh, no, and, and you're absolutely right about that. None, in so many ways, but but this being one of them, none of us are living up to our, our highest ideals. And it is it is easy to recognize the value of empathy. It is difficult to practice it. And uh, so number one, one reason that we don't uh, do a better job of practicing empathy is that we're selfish. <laughs> Like, yeah. Just bottom line, we're just selfish, and we have, and I referenced this a moment ago, that we have believed the the delusion that happiness is found in pursuing our own narrow interests. Now, on some level, we know that's not true because the quote unquote rich and famous among us are not the happiest among us, right? But we still live like it's true that somehow, if I can attract more attention for myself, that that is going to lead to my ultimate fulfillment and happiness. If I can attract more stuff, if I can amass greater power, that that's going to make me happier. Now, the research shows that is simply not true, uh, which I want to give an example of how selfishness works, but I want to, yeah. I want to work in one other little quick nugget that I, that has so been so powerful to me ever since I heard it. It was actually a friend of mine uh, used it in, in a sermon a long time ago. Uh, he lives in Southern California and I was listening to it and he was, he talked about the Harvard happiness study where people at Harvard studied Happiness. And it was a, yeah, I know, creative name. And it was a, it was a longitudinal study. So it, it studied people over the course of several decades, trying to determine essentially what makes people happy. And people, of you know, married or single, people with lots of money, not so much money, people with lots of power, not so much power. And what they found was, is that really, to take money, for example, once you have enough of it to basically pay your bills, more of it has a marginal, if any, influence on your overall happiness. There's virtually no correlation once you get above a certain number, and that number is not very high. But what they found was that the two things that strongly, that correlate most strongly with happiness, happiness are number one, the presence of loving relationships, mm. and then number two, the ability to cope with the stresses of life in the way that does not push love away, which I thought was just powerful. So the happiest people in the world mm -hmm. are people that have loving relationships in their lives, yep. and then who can cope with the stress that they feel in life in a way that does not push others yes. away. Now, That's, when we're yeah. selfish, <laughs> it hurts relationships. It does. When we're selfish, it pushes people away. It does. Right. Yeah. So, so, so that has been just powerful to me ever since I've, I've kind of heard that and processed it. But now here's my one way that we are selfish all the time. I am too, and I hate this about myself. Mm -hmm. And then I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. This is how we're selfish. We beat each other's stories. What, what does that we mean? We beat each other's stories. So I'm going to cite my favorite comedian, Brian Regan, because he's a great joke about this, how he says, don't ever try to tell a story about having two wisdom teeth pulled. Because, what? yeah, it sounds, sounds very random, right? Because yeah. if you ever try to tell a story, hey, I had my wisdom teeth pulled. Huh? Oh, really? How many did you have pulled? Oh, well, I had two pulled. I had four pulled. Yeah. Somebody is immediately going to jump in with a story about how they had four pulled. And then he goes on to say, you know, they were impacted. I had eight of them. I was a warthog. They pulled them all out. I was eating corn on the cob that afternoon. And you're like, okay. Right. Or we hear somebody tell a story and it's almost like in an attempt to relate, yes. we try to bring it back to us. Yes. And, and one up. And, and here's the thing. I am a serial story, story beater. And I hate that about myself. I have never once. Had somebody tell me, wow, Brian, thank you for beating my story. Thank you for having a much better story I than I appreciate that so much, right? It hurts relationships when we do that, and yet we do it all the time. I am, like, it was like years ago that I saw that bit from Brian Regan. Yeah. And I try, like, and still, I could be listening to somebody tell a story. And there is like that little voice inside of me that's like, oh, you've got a story like this, and it's better, and you should tell it as soon as they're done. Oh, it's going to be great. Everyone's going to love you. It's going to be so awesome. Yep. And it's like, I have to just be so conscious about push that little voice down and instead maybe ask a follow-up question right. or something like that. I wish I was perfect at that. I am not. But that is a way that I, and it hurts relationships so much when all we're doing is beating each other's stories right. instead of really giving one of our most precious commodities away. And that is our attention. No, that's super. That's super good. Um, it, this is a bit counterintuitive because I'll call it the Twinkie effect. 
that if I patent pending, if I yes, <laughs> if I, if there's a Twinkie over on the table, I know that I can feel better. If I go get the Twinkie for myself, I don't think immediately to go get a Twinkie for someone else. You mm-hmm. understand what I'm saying? So okay. it is the natural drive for me to say, I will be happier if I serve my own interests. Yeah. So I'm going to go get the Twinkie for me. Yeah. But what you're telling me is that long term, it actually doesn't play out that way. Right. The happiness factor or the satisfaction factor is not met by that immediate response yeah. uh, for oneself. Yeah. Now- it does feel better. Let's yeah. be real clear on that. <laughs> the Twinkie does feel better in my stomach rather than in someone else's stomach. Yeah. But that the cost long term is that ends up leading to an emptiness that is greater than what you think you're getting benefit for. Right. I mean, that's just a fancy yeah. way of saying I don't think we fully appreciate the power of serving other people and the the deeper joy that that brings than momentary happiness yeah and and it's almost like and well yeah i think you're you're right about that and i think that that's a good example of how when yeah when the focus is just on me and my needs and i want that twinkie for myself you know there's a whole other and i don't know if this is like some perverse way of beating your story i hope it's not i'm not trying to but it's almost like the idea of like to to if you're talking to me and telling me a story and if I take the focus and shift it on myself to me that's almost like like the hit you would get from like eating the twinkie or eating right, food or like right. eating the six oreo cookies I ate last night which I'm like I know this is a bad idea I know I'm going to feel <laughs> terrible afterwards I'm going to do it anyway and yep I feel bad afterwards it's like it's almost this like sort of relational junk food totally <laughs> as opposed to you know being able to actually connect over okay let me serve the needs of somebody else yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I and and I I think that we are sometimes, especially in a fast paced society, we want the quick hit. Yeah. And I think that selfishness is a quick hit. I think it's an ultimate long term steal. Yep. It it takes away from you. Yeah. Um, no, okay. Well so selfishness was the first one. Yeah. I'll What's do the it? other two super quick. So the second is just lack of attentiveness. Uh, we're as distracted as ever, and my mere neurons don't kick in if I'm not paying attention. Ah. Uh, right. Yeah, uh, you right. ha- we have to slow down enough to give attention to one another and, and recognize that the dopamine hit that we all get from our electronics, which I'm not anti-electronics, but the dopamine hit that we give get from that is no substitute for the time it takes to give attention. Now, and that doesn't mean we have to give attention to everybody, right. but to be able to give attention to the people that really matter to us is is important and if i don't do that i'm not going to practice empathy right um, so to be attentive um ultimately leads to validating somebody else yeah um you had you had done some research i remember in your talk you were referring to the idea that it's very easy to offer a non-validating response. Yeah. What would that example, what are the impacts of that? Yeah, no, this was helpful for me because it really exposed something that I do a lot that, uh, right. according to this book I was reading, is, is not helpful. Which So uh, I, by nature don't like to dwell on negativity for a long time. Like I might, you know me well enough to know that I complain a fair amount, but it's like, I don't like to just stay there. Right. So, so oftentimes subconsciously, if faced with a problem or a dilemma or someone else's crisis, I go into minimize mode very quickly. And, and that's not because I don't want to deal with it. It's because I want to fix it. Right. So a non-empathetic response would be if if you were to come to me and you you were to say, gosh, I'm really having a hard time getting ready for this weekend. I got a lot going on in my life or I'm stressed out about X, Y and Z and this passage is really difficult or whatever. My natural response would be to say to you, oh, come on, Lance, you're a great preacher. It's going to be fine. You're going to do great. You know, right. and here I go walking away thinking, well, look at me. I've just complimented Lance and everything's all all good. Right. And depending on a person's personality, yeah. maybe that would be what you need. But what this book I was reading was recommending was that the first your first step is to yeah, man, I'm sorry to hear that. That that sounds really hard to be dealing with all this stuff in your life and have a tough passage to preach on and just the pressure that comes with preaching every weekend. I that's that's man, that that's that's real. So to start there, so what I'm doing is I'm validating your emotions. I'm validating the way that you feel. And now from there, I can give I can try to affirm and just say, "Hey, you know, I I believe in you. We'll be praying for you and and you know, I'm confident that God's going to do good things and all of that." So it's not to say we don't give right. compliments or 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 encouragement, but 
I think that a lot of times when when people come to us struggling, and this is again, I'm like I'm speaking from a place I'm trying to learn this. I'm not an expert in it by sure, any means. Sure. When people come to us struggling, that our first step needs to be to validate where they are, that that's actually what a lot of people are looking for before they're looking for us to say, Oh, no, 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 here it's gonna be it's yes. gonna be fine. <laughs> like, well, okay, so this is a big struggle in my marriage. Yeah. Um, so I remember actually learning this skill. Um, probably in my twenties, mm-hmm. with the idea of that that craving to minimize something or to you know yeah. just shut it down, and then I went whoa 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 that's that's not what they were looking for. They actually need me to enter into their world and go that really hurts, regardless of if it should hurt or not. Should right. it hurts, and I need to somehow interact with that. But what's interesting is I find that in my marriage. I tend to want to minimize problems because I already feel like I have enough problems of my own yeah. and I don't need a, he- a one more weight may well tip me over. Mm-hmm. So if Susie wants to come share something or share a series of challenges, I immediately try to shut them down because I don't want to handle more. Yeah. And so I will give these non-validating <laughs> responses like yeah. it'll be fine. Yeah. What is the impact of empathy, non-empathy on marriage? Uh, yeah, it's significant, and I I I want to I want to put a pin in that because I want to come back yeah. to even how do you like how have you processed that because because the reality is you're still in a place where you're not really able to take on a lot emotionally right but you've learned enough to know that just the it'll be fine response doesn't is work. not so, okay so I'd love to hear more oh, from you on how totally you, yeah yeah how, let's how you hold process on to that. that but um uh so so but, one study yeah. that, one study that I looked at was so this guy named John Gottman he's sort of a marriage guru yes. he's not a not a not a Christian I'm sure you've come across him and all of the the yep. research you've done on the subject but he he talks about or I learned about a study that he once did where basically they created this like quote unquote lab environment that was just basically a bed and breakfast where they brought all these couples together and had them spend a weekend at this bed and breakfast doing coupley things and they just observed them and what they were watching for was they were watching for basically times where one person in the marriage would sort of request the attention of the other one. So, for example, uh, one would say, hey, wow, look at that car over there. And just to see what did the other spouse, how did they respond? And they categorized the responses in two ways. One is to turn toward the person, to say something to the effect of, oh, wow, that is that is a cool car. Or even, what, you like that car? That thing is really banana yellow? Like, I don't think so. Like, but just to engage with what's going on versus a turn away, which would be to sort of maybe not look up from what you're doing and sort of dismissively, oh, that's nice, honey. Like that sort of a thing. That would shut it down. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So they categorized them again, turn towards or turn away. And then what they did was they they categorized all these different interactions that couples had. And then they followed these couples for six years. Six years later, they looked at, okay, who's still married and who's divorced? And then they went back and looked at those interactions from that weekend. Couples that were still married on average, when one couple would seek some validation, they would re- receive a turn toward response from their partner 87% of the time, which wow. is almost always. Yeah, that's huge. And those who were divorced, who were no longer married, only experienced that 33% of the time. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes they would be dismissed by their spouse. And sort of their what they're saying, what, what Gottman concluded and his team concluded is that really when you say to your spouse, when you say to a loved one, when you ask them to engage with you on something, whether, you know, I mean, to use my silly car example, it's not really about the car. Right. As much as it is about, do you see me right now? Will you share in an experience with Can me? Can you care about what I care about? Right. And even when, I think even when we're the one making that request, we might not even realize that's what we're seeking. Right. But- it is what we're seeking. Yes. So, so I think about that with with my wife. I think about that with my children. Just the importance of okay, it's so easy, especially in our distracted world, to sort of subconsciously blow them off and not really mean anything by it, or to be totally selfish and blow them off. <laughs> right. But it's dangerous. Yeah, it and, is. And to really pay attention to requests for my attention that come from people that 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 matter to me. So, so, so I want to get back to what you were saying though. 
How do you navigate that though? Because I think a lot of people can relate to that. Like, gosh, I'm I'm stressed. I got a lot going on. I'm I'm, I'm feeling the weight of a lot of things. I don't know that I could take someone else's emotional. Uh, I, you know, I don't mean this negatively, but it's their emotional baggage right yes. now. And yet, it's my spouse. I kind of need to. Right. How do you navigate that? Yeah, I think that there is there is an element. Probably more of us need to engage with it. Um, there are some couples that need to put some healthy boundaries because the other one is just dumping yeah. an awful lot and you have to go yeah. whoa 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 I this is this is there's such an, a craving for validation there's something unhealthy there yeah and you need to kind of put a little stopper mm-hmm. in that but most of us need to grow in that so um, one of the things that was very important to me uh, growing up it was a quantum shift in a paradigm change in my thinking was when I realized that just because people are adults or in big people bodies doesn't mean that they're adults in their minds. Yeah. That really we're all a bunch of kids that know how to drive, right? <laughs> um, that, that, we're, that people are still craving things. They're still scared on the playground. They're still feeling yeah. alone. They're still unsure whether or not they can play kickball or they're going to be made fun of. Yeah. That this is happening in the workplace. Yep. That everybody, uh, yeah, you're right. You, you're in a larger body and you dress nicer. Okay, yeah. that that doesn't mean that you're a grown up inside. And right. I really feel like people are are large children. Yeah. And when you do that, and someone has a need, because if you figure that they're already self satisfied, they're all good, and then they complain about something, you want to shut them down and go grow up. Yeah. But if you look at them and go, they're still struggling to make sense of their world. Yeah. You have more compassion. Yeah. And you go, wow, they're asking me for validation a lot right now mm-hmm. because they're really hurting inside. Yeah. And when you can see that, you don't come off with the the cocky, mean, uh, you know, push it off, ignore. You go, wow, they're coming to me with a legitimate hurt. And I'm a monster if I'm not responding to that well. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right about that. And, and I think that's really powerful. And that, just to just to recognize that, that reality that everyone is afraid. Right? Yes, like, and I don't afraid. mean we're paralyzed by fear necessarily, no. but everyone's afraid. Yes. Everyone's insecure. Yes. Everyone's just trying to figure it out. And yes. it's so easy to look at other people and think, oh, well, they're... They got it locked in. Like they're like they they they, they got their act together. Yes. I was even sharing. We you know I meet with our next gen team every other every other week. Our whole student ministry staff and we were talking about how uh, or I I was sharing how I'm just always sort of appalled by my own tendency to treat my coworkers like robots. Mm. And here's what I mean by that. I mean I come to work with like and I got a pretty good life. But like I come to work with you know I'm thinking about the kids. I'm thinking about right. what we got. You know what what are we doing for dinner tonight? I mean you know we got practice and blah, 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 carpools, all this other stuff. Like I'm thinking about all this stuff and it's, you know, it just, it weighs on you in different ways and how, how I can subconsciously think, oh, well, everyone else who's here is just completely locked in and focused yes. and they're not dealing with anything else in their That's personal That's not realistic. It's completely unrealistic, but it's so easy to do. Yes. And to recognize famous people, they're struggling. Yep. The people that are super successful, they're successful, but they're still, they're still insecure all yep. of that. I remember we were having a family dinner recently, sitting in my house, and one of my family members asked, like, we were talking about this question of, like, when did you really start to feel like a grown-up? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, in a lot of ways, I still don't. Oh, I agree. And and I think it was my mom who, like, she thought I must be joking. Like, oh, I've got a career and children and a house and all this other stuff. Yeah. I'm like, I Nope. I just feel like I'm still figuring that I I what am I doing? <laughs> you know, like trying yes. to figure a lot of this this stuff out. And I think to recognize, okay, I'm not the only one who feels that way. No. Can allow me to then have empathy for others and to recognize sort of the complexity of their own emotions around what's going on in their lives. And then hopefully that can increase my sense of compassion and everything else. So. One of my uh, uh frustrations with road rage that uh <laughs> when people ha- are mean and it, is it's so selfish. Yeah. Um, when you're going through and you're complaining about every other driver, you're assuming you're you're negating your own mistakes. Yeah. When you just switched lanes and didn't quite see them because they were in your blind spot, yeah. that was acceptable to you. Right. But when someone does it to you, they're an idiot. Yep. How did they suddenly become an idiot? And that yep. that lack of empathy, that yep. lack of what if they're rushing to get home or they just got fired yep. and they're trying to get home to their to a safe place. What if what if they're scared for their children's health yep. because their child's in the hospital? 
And this idea of I'm mad in traffic yeah. is so selfish. Right. You have no idea. You just assume everyone else is fine and they're just being dumb. Yeah. Why would you assume that? <laughs> Talk about the ultimate environment where you have incomplete information. Oh, right? yeah. You have no idea. Yeah. You're assuming everything. Yeah. But exactly what you've just described. I mean, I, I, think, I mean, you know this. For our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with this term, they call that the fundamental attribution error. And it is absolutely powerful if you can really start to get that in your spirit because here's the thing and what's that it, exactly what you just described yeah. other people speed because they're idiots i speed because i'm late yes right that's uh, right it's it's i do things for righteous reasons and i have yes. good excuses whereas i'm i would demonize others absolutely for the very same behavior and and i just i i don't know i i have not figured out the way and i've never been a big like road rage guy but i've i whether when i experience something frustrating or the frustrating behavior of another person I have not reached the stage of my maturity where I can instantly not be frustrated. <laughs> like I still have that first frustrated thought, but even in studying the fundamental attribution error and studying all of these, these different ideas, I've just tried so hard to get to the point where it's like, okay, maybe my first thought might be, oh my gosh, that guy cut me off. Second thought is I don't know the whole story. Yeah. Just, cause, cause really my anger, me living in that place of anger, it's selfish, it's immature and it's unhelpful. Yep. Right. To just I don't know the whole story and try to, OK, what is there here for me to understand? Now, in a driving incident, there, there's not much. The situation happens and it's over. But I think in our interpersonal relationships, OK, what is there for me to understand here? Right. I, I think that's a powerful question to ask. You know, what's super weird. I came in from the other side. I had to teach myself to put in boundaries because I was huh. so much more concerned with everyone else's thoughts and everyone else's feelings and everyone else's. Um, so actually, road rage is not natural to me. I'm the other way. I have an excuse for everything. Well, who's holier now? Well, you totally. <laughs> well, if someone cuts me off, I'm like, oh my gosh, their grandma just died. You know, like that's my first reaction, which that's is awesome. not true. It's yeah. not very realistic. Sure, sure, sure. I actually had to grow up in a different direction to stop things like codependence, to stop yeah. things. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. Uh, but you mentioned uh, a moment ago, uh, you segued into number three. So the challenges to empathy, we talked about selfishness is a primary one. Yeah. The second one is lack of attentiveness. If we're yeah. not paying attention, we can't be empathetic. Yeah. But the third one you crossed over when you mentioned the phrase insecurity, which yeah. I don't think is a phrase, I think it's a word, <laughs> but defensiveness and or insecurity. Can you talk for a moment about that? Yeah. Uh, defensiveness will, will destroy our empathy because uh, a posture of defensiveness or a posture of insecurity is necessarily selfish yes. because I want attention on myself. So I just finished listening to this great book that was just, I swear, was just written for me. And that is that it was, it was called This Is Your Brain on Sports, where it was about all the these things related to the sports world, but then talked about like serious psychological principles behind a lot of it. So it was very like nerdy and high level oh, in, the, yeah. in the science end, but also in the sports end. And they had this whole thing about how all athletes want to be underdogs. Like, and they'll all talk like there's even been like times where teams will be like almost arguing in the media about like whose victory would be more shocking and they're playing each other. Like that right. kind of a thing. Everyone wants to be the underdog because there's some sort of like, oh, well, if we lose, meh. And if we win, wow, wasn't that amazing, right? Mm, let's go with the pressure. Yeah. And, and I think that in so many places in society, nobody wants to admit when they're in a position of privilege. <laughs> no. And everybody wants to be the one who the world is stacked up against me, right? Yeah. And when I am trying to show that I'm the one who's overcoming all the odds at all times, right? That's selfish. I'm seeking attention for myself to say, okay, here's why I have it the hardest. Here's why I need to be praised for even getting out of bed in the morning. And I don't say that to minimize anybody's very legitimate challenges. Right, right, right. But I found that for me to be, for me to grow in empathy, so take, like, this might be controversial, but, but whatever. Take the idea of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Like, white privilege is a very real thing. Yes. Male privilege is a very real thing. Yes. Uh, I think even on some level, and some might disagree with me on this, on some level, Christian privilege is a very real thing because mm -hmm. I think Christians are, in general, treated better than a lot of other faith communities in our society yes. today. So, so rather than me trying to deny those things because I'm a white male Christian, yeah. <laughs> instead, I just want to recognize, okay, that doesn't mean my life's not hard. But it means there are certain challenges I'm not going to face yes. because of the realities of those privileges. So now because I have those privileges, instead of trying to deny them, how can I then leverage those things for the benefit of others? How can I try to be more empathetic towards others rather than trying to live with this posture of like, no, no, it's me against the world. Like I, 
when it's me against the world, I don't, I don't think I'm going to care about anybody else. But when I can recognize, okay, I have been given gifts. I have privilege that comes from being born in America, privilege that comes from the relative lack of relational chaos in my family history. Right. Like all these things just to recognize, okay. Privilege of good health. Yeah. Privilege of good health. Privilege of a mind that like sort of works yes. most of the time. You know, like these are all things that can allow me to increase my sense of empathy uh, because I'm taking the attention off of, oh, look at me, look at how hard I have it. And instead I'm saying, no, actually I'm, I've been, I've been gifted in a lot of things that I had no choice in. So how can I leverage those gifts for the benefit of others? Does that make sense? Uh, it's <laughs> the most recent manuscript I just wrote. Oh, well, there so we yes, go. So yes, I'm All very right. much into that. <laughs> um, now, do you think that the whole idea of underdog is a more recent phenomenon? Has it always been that way? Because there's also an element of sports, if we're talking about sports, yeah. which is I'm the dominant. There's a, an attitude of music. I'm on top of the world. I kill sure. everybody. I'm not the underdog. I'm the king. Yeah, that's And a good point. so you kind of go, is that a more recent thing or is it just you can go one of two directions if you're not the top dog you always want to be the underdog yeah you, you know what i mean those are like two symptoms of the same yeah root cause. yeah i don't know That's yeah, an interesting I, I, don't, thought. I don't know I'm not sure. um and then um one of the things that i think i just wanted to highlight that you said that i think was very important is that when you're in opposition with someone else there is no desire to seek to understand right like i mean you're yeah. my opponent yeah i'm not trying to understand you yeah that's why we have to change the attitude of opponents yeah as opposed to we're all in this together trying to get through. Yeah. Because if it's an ally, if it's a partner, if it's a person struggling like me, we can have empathy. Right. But if you're my enemy, you don't want empathy for your enemy. Right. By design. Right. We're not we're not focused on our common goal. We're right. focused on being oppositional. Yes. Uh, which is why, I mean, you know, there's a reason why two basketball teams don't work together. Yes. Like one is directly invested in the defeat of another. Yes. It's a reason why everyone's all surprised. Like, oh, you know, politics is so dysfunctional. Well, duh. There is no incentive in a two-party system no. for the parties to work together. Because, right. anyway, I mean, people understand that. It's like, As long as we choose to view the world in that way, we're, we're never going to be empathetic towards towards one another because it's it's purely oppositional. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna turn the corner here, yeah. um, because we need to learn how to grow. Uh, yeah. You had five keys in your talk about how to grow in empathy. Can you go through those for us? Yeah. So number one is get curious. Uh, get curious first of all about other people. Uh, I love how in our mission statement here at Bridgeway we talk about equipping one another to bring the wholeness of Jesus to a broken world. Right. How we're very big on we're equipping one another. One another. It's yes. not like you and me and the rest of the staff equipping everybody else, but nope. rather we're a faith family. Yes. And and, and I I've said how that that impacts the way that I approach say casual lobby conversations. Absolutely. That I might be the one who has information that someone else needs or asking a question about an event or whatever, but. Every conversation is not just a chance for me to dispense my knowledge. It's a chance for me to grow yes. by listening, right? So get curious about other people. And I just said this. Most people are pretty interesting if you learn to ask good questions. Amen. Which is skipping forward to, to my next one. But but also I think curiosity is so important because Kerry uh, Newhoff, a guy who I, I enjoy listening to and reading, says this. He says that uh, curious people are never cynical. And cynical people are never curious, mm. right? Which I think is really powerful. So I always want to maintain a posture of curiosity yeah, towards those around me. Uh, and then with that, I think get curious about the world. Uh, I thought this was interesting. As someone, I read almost exclusively nonfiction. But studies have shown that reading literary fiction, like fiction with complex characters, mm -hmm. increases empathy because... Oh, absolutely. It's know? giving you insight. Exactly. So uh, so, so there's that. I mean, I, we already referenced seek to understand, uh, then be under... Or seek first to understand and then be understood. Uh, and then I also think part of getting curious is watching your influences. Uh, I don't ever want to only be influenced by either voices that are excessively negative, voices that are excessively argumentative, or voices that only reinforce what I already think. Because I think all of those things will dull my sense of curiosity. Uh, no, that's super good. The smaller your world, the less empathy you will have. Yeah. One of the things that we've seen recently is a lot of shootings. And, and as you go through and study a lot of people that are involved in um, mass tragedy, yeah. they usually have a very tiny world. Yeah. They're either completely isolated 
or they're backed up with bad influences. Yeah. Those are your only two options. Yeah. Because if they're in a healthy interaction with the world around them, it creates an empathy and a compassion that doesn't allow them to carry out those activities yeah. unless there is mental illness. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And so many of the, you know, racism. Yes. Is on some level the result of a lack of curiosity. Now, there's much more to it as well. But right. Yep, and it, and it can only exist in isolation or bad influences. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear all these stories about things like, um, you look at like Israelis and Palestinians. Yes. Like, historically, you know, not two groups of people that really get along no. great. There are all these organizations now that like create space for Israelis and Palestinians, like normal citizens like you and me, yep. to like have phone calls with one another, to just talk. That's awesome. And you realize how like, oh, actually... Yeah, we're living on the same planet here. Like we're yep. we're dealing with the same. We're not, we're not yeah. so different, you and I, right? Right. And and I think that that's really powerful. And even you think about it from another perspective, you talk about a narrow world. You go the opposite direction. You were just referencing Uganda. We just had yes. a team come back from Uganda. Your daughter yes. was on that team. Yes. And how part of the benefit of certainly doing missions, I would suggest part of the benefit of travel in general. Yes. Is that it expands absolutely your world? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So number one was yeah. get curious. Number two, and we already talked about this a lot, so we'll go go by it yep. uh, fairly quickly. Is to practice validation. To in any conversation I'm in, if somebody is expressing an emotion to me, to seek to validate and recognize that emotion wherever I can, honestly, and I can do that even if I don't agree with the emotion necessarily. But that oftentimes taking that first step of validating an emotion can actually help in if correction needs to come later or if a deeper conversation uh, needs to happen. Um, if you validate emotions, what you're saying to somebody else is, okay, I'm, I'm safe for you. We can have a conversation. Right. I'm not just going to shut you down. Um, the third one then is to practice non-judgmental feeling and listening. And oh my gosh, <laughs> this one's hard. <laughs> this one's so hard. Um, snap judgments destroy empathy, uh, as we've discussed yes. with the with the car example, because uh, we don't know and we don't know the whole story no. when we make a judgment. But but I thought this was really powerful, and, and again, this is something I, I read a few weeks ago. Is that if if I'm going to be non judgmental towards you, the first thing I need to do is be non judgmental towards myself. Right, right, and right. that's really hard. I was sitting with a guy recently who was sharing with me some hard things he was going through, and he said the way that he felt about some of them. And he, what he said to me was, I know this is terrible, but blah, 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 this is how I feel. And I stopped him, and I said, no. Like, that's how you feel. Yes. And I think a lot of people in your shoes might feel similarly. So let's not let's not judge you harshly for feeling that way. Yes. Let's, let's just let that be what it is, right? Right. Because if I'm going to be harsh towards you, it's usually because I've been harsh towards myself. Oh, for sure. First, you know, the old, the old cliche, hurt people, hurt people. Yes. Right? That I actually, what I want to do is I want to have the ability to feel what I am feeling. Now, my feelings may sort of be a canary in a coal mine that helps me recognize some unhealth and some dysfunction. Right. Maybe if I'm experiencing jealousy or something to that effect. But I need to allow myself to feel non-judgmentally so that then when I listen to you or I listen to anybody else, I'm not being harsh and judgmental towards them. But that's a hard thing. To, I mean, would you agree? I mean, is that something you have a hard time with, either with yourself or with other people? Uh, with a snap judgment? Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, I just think, even think, think the ability to feel and listen non-judgmentally. Well, I... Um Yes. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that fights against me is I have a very fast mind. Um, <laughs> I, I spin things super fast. I come to decisions and judgments and opinions in an instant. Yeah. Um, and I actually have to uh, slow that process down. Yeah. I have to willfully slow it down to listen deeper and go, you don't have all the information. Yeah. Quit making that decision. Quit making that decision. But I make very, very rapid decisions. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I did want to highlight real quick before we move on is that a lot, I have found that in, in my experience, a lot of people are emotionally stunted. Hmm, yeah. And what I mean by that is they don't really understand themselves. They don't realize how mean they are to themselves and hmm. why they're mean to other people. Yeah. I feel like there's not a lot of self-awareness, hmm. um, in the world. And I, I don't think that's a new phenomenon. I think that that has been historically the case. We probably are a little bit more self-aware than we've ever been in history 
And yeah. I still think because of the amount of sure. magazine articles, people br- drawing attention to it, you know, stuff like yeah. that. On some but, level, it's a little bit of a luxury even to be able to do that. Oh, right? absolutely. Like, we're not all figuring out where is food coming from, so we can. Well, how yeah. am I feeling about if this? If you're in a war torn country, <laughs> yeah. you're not you're not doing a lot of self reflection, right? Right. Yeah. Um, but but once again, we are in a very peaceful, relatively peaceful place where we are highly privileged. Yeah. So I think that we're doing more self-reflection, but still we're shockingly emotionally stunted. I think people are still doing things and they're not sure why they're doing things. Mm. And and that's that's going to be a problem. One thing that you uh, mentioned in your talk that I wanted you to just briefly explain was that you said empathy reduces perfectionism. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. When I can be when I can empathize with somebody else and and sort of feel their own feel their own reality, feel to, to the extent that that's possible, to feel their own pain, to feel their own hurt. I can recognize that they're not perfect, so I don't have to be perfect either. Got it. I don't have to project this sense of, oh, everything is, I've got everything all together. Uh, I can reckon, and and this is a challenge, and, and we talk about this all the time, but like the challenge of, say, social media yes. is we see everyone's highlights, and yes. that's fine. That's what social media is for. Right. But yep. that, I think, encourages an unrealistic perfectionism, whereas and then what I'm doing is I see, you know, someone else's highlights and I'm comparing that to my like behind right. the scenes reality. And I'm like, wah, wah. so know? true. But when I can experience the pain of other people, realize they're not robots, but they they're fighting their own battles. I can give myself permission yeah. to not be perfect, too, which I mean, perfectionism, I mean, it'll crush you if you let it. Yes. Right. So, yes. Uh, so number one, get curious. Number two, practice validation of other people. Number three, practice non-judgmental feelings and listening. What's number four? Yeah. Number four, learn to ask great questions. Uh, this comes from from listening. Is is ask great questions that are open ended, and then as you listen. Think about what is a follow-up question that I can ask. Now, don't be so in your head about questions that you're not <laughs> not listening, ironically. But once again, most people are interesting if you learn to ask questions. And this also does not have to be for everyone. There are some people I know, if I ask them a question, don't do it if I don't have an hour. And oh, I often totally. don't have an hour. Yeah. So I don't think we have to have this pressure of like, oh my gosh, I need to be like deeply invested in every human I ever come in contact with. Yes. Right? But to recognize, especially in relationships that really matter. To learn to ask questions is is a skill. This is my number one skill that I believe is lacking. It's in this. Yourself it's asking questions. No, no, no. In okay. society, yeah, uh, the inability to ask questions yeah. or the unwillingness yeah. to ask questions, and I believe it's even worse in the younger generation than it is in the older generation. At some point, you get forced to. Yeah. In life, if you're going to have any relationships at all. Yeah. But I have noticed people struggle making friendships, and this is the number one reason because they haven't learned the skill of asking questions. Yeah. Yeah, and it is it is absolutely a skill. And it's I mean oh, it's yeah. funny you and I being in the environment we're in. I mean, you're in kind of conversational environments all the time, yes. right? And even a lot of small talk type type yes. environments. And it's I mean, nothing brings out the introvert in me like forced small talk, right? Right. But over time, I, I think I I think I've gotten better at this. I'm always still right. trying to get better. Oh, sure. I, I don't know. Well, you can get better and still yeah, not arrive. It's my desire to avoid awkwardness that I just want to like, oh, man, how do I get better at asking questions? Yeah. But to really try to, if I'm going to be in a conversation with somebody, all right, I've got questions I can ask. Uh, and as I'm asking those questions about family, about workplace, about whatever, I'm listening for things I can invite deeper you know, responses to. And we talk about not beating each other's stories. I, I think that that's important. So I don't want to be like, oh, okay, I ask someone a question and then I immediately kind of give my own version of their story. But I think what we can do is we can look for opportunities for connection. Oh, you're really into that. I'm really into that too. And instead of me now telling a five minute story about how I'm into their same hobby, hey, when did you start, you know, doing that thing, playing that game, whatever. And then that way we can create connection while still offering validation and giving away our attention. I I feel like uh, the beating each other stories at its at its most innocent is simply immature affirmation. Yeah, yeah I, well you know said. what I mean. Like I, I don't I don't think this, there is a wicked side of it, which is the look at me, uh-huh. I'm better. But I think a lot of it is just immaturity. Yeah, um, not realizing what it what you're doing. Totally, because you're trying yes. to connect. I think most people are trying to connect. You just end up wrecking the other person. Yes, there's a it's a weird like subconscious. Totally. I think I'm being nice. Yes. 
<laughs> but I'm not. But I'm really not. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, so tough. as we land this plane, yep. you got to give us number five. Number five, and this is the one because because here's the thing: everything I've said so far, I mean, this could be a totally secular conversation, and right. all of that is is valid. And I'm a big believer in in common grace, and that these sorts of things are still gifts from God, even if they're not overtly Christian. But our fifth point here is overtly Christian, and that is know who you are in Christ. Yeah, and that's so simple. But it's profound because, number one, if I'm receiving validation from who I am in Christ, I'm not going out into the world with this empty bucket asking people to fill it for me. Yes. Instead, I'm going out with a full bucket trying to seek who can I who can I validate? Who can I give validation to? It gives us a sense of mission that is greater than ourselves. I mean, you think about, uh, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139 says, or, or the idea that I am God's workmanship, as Ephesians 2 says. That can allow us to enter into life with some confidence, now not arrogance, but confidence, to know, okay, God tells me who I am. I have all of the validation that I need, so now I can seek to extend that to others. And I think that when we look at verses like, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, I need to recognize, okay, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and so are you. Right. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So is ever, I, 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 in the talk I cited, uh, so Gary Thomas, this sort of relationship guru, he, this is one of those things I remember listening to one of his books, and it's like, I remember exactly where I was running when he said this line, because it really resonated with me, how he said, God is not just your heavenly father, he's your heavenly father-in-law. I'm like, oh, dang, you know, yeah, it's like, how good. you treating my daughter, son, you know? And, and I think that the idea that like God, like it's not just that he has made me his workmanship. He's made every single person I come in contact with his workmanship as well. How can I validate that in other people? How can I help them see that? How can I, you know, it's not like I'm walking around with this arrogance, like, Hey, look at me. I'm, you know, more special than you or whatever. But rather, I recognize sort of the sacredness of my humanity because of who I am in Christ, and I can help other people see that as well. I think that in my best moments, when I'm really tapping into that, that's when I'm least selfish and least irritable. Now, in my worst moments, it's typically when I forget about that. But I mean, that's just so much of what we're about, I feel like, in so much of what we do is this sense of identity and knowing who we are in Christ and helping others see that, right? Yeah. So I, uh, Christian identity is huge to me. I mean, I, I've done so much writing and and talking on it. Um, it is based, Christianity is based on the overflowing principle, Yeah, which is that, that the commands and demands and expectations that God places on his believers is because he knows that he has given you enough to overflow. You love others because you've been filled up with love to overflowing. Mm -hmm. You forgive others because you've been filled up with forgiveness from him. You are empathetic because he has been empathetic to you. Like it's that overflow principle. He's not demanding that you draw from a dry well. He's saying, I have filled you up. So when we have Christian identity fully saturated, then there is a generous giving because we already have enough. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing uh, that message, uh, yeah. Pastor Bry. But um, I do want to make sure that we carve out enough space. You're going to kind of, kind of talk us out of sure, this sure. one. But uh, but your final thoughts as you finished up wrapping up this whole concept. I know it it resonated with you. Yeah. And when, when you talked about the idea that we were going to do this today on the podcast, uh, there was a little bright light that went on in your eyes because I yeah. felt like maybe you had stumbled across a gem yeah. maybe in your own life. But can, can you kind of take us home on this one and then talk us maybe out of the, the podcast? Yeah, yeah. And thank you for the conversation today. And thanks to all of you for listening. I, I, I think a couple things real quick. Number one, as we talk about growing in empathy, first of all, recognize uh, that you're not going to get it right all the time and that there is grace for us in this process, right? In the same way that when we try to work out after a long period of being sedentary, we're going to be sore. It's not going to go well. We're not going to be able to lift very much, all this other stuff. That's how it is with this too. So don't beat yourself up when you find, man, I'm, ah, just beat their story. I can't believe I did that. Or, ah, I had this opportunity to help someone and, and I didn't. But I think on the flip side, man, when we know who we are in Christ, when we can have a non-defensive posture, when I can recognize that there is something out there in the world that is richer for me in paying attention to others than I can possibly find sucking up attention to myself or, or just being content with screens and everything else, man, that's a game changer. 
And if we can get that, man, I think about my own marriage. I think about my own parenting. I think about my own, uh, my, my work, everything. If I can just get that right and continue to grow, I think the blessing that flows out of that for me and for the people around me is significant. And that's what it is uh, that really inspires me to want to get this right. And hopefully as, as you know, any of you have listened, hopefully that inspires you as well. So thanks for listening. Hope this was helpful for you. I really do believe that empathy is the most underrated relationship skill. And I believe that God who loves us wants us to grow in this area for his glory and for our joy. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Engaging Culture. Thank you for listening to Engaging Culture, a podcast by Bridgeway Christian Church. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Music is used under the Creative Commons license and is provided by Dexter Britton.